847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score or taking a deep dive into a particular composer and their career, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also just fellow fans. On today's episode, my focus will be an interview with, uh, with someone who actually is a musician and a composer in the industry. So uh, my guest today uh, is Ben Wise, uh, composer and musician. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to have him on the podcast uh, to talk about his experiences as far as being a, a, a you know a pop musician as as well as a composer in the industry you know for you know commercial projects. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so um, just to to take just to sort of set up a little bit as far as like your musician your background as a musician. Yes. Where did that start for you? Uh, so I have a pretty unconventional background uh, as compared to a lot of composers. Uh, certainly. I have more of a musician's background, I guess I would say. Um, My parents were both music teachers. Uh, I grew up in a very musical household, and uh, I was certainly encouraged. Um, I started around the age of five um, singing in the children's choir at church. Wow. And uh, started taking piano lessons, I want to say at six. Um, My mom was a piano teacher. My dad was a high school marching band teacher. Uh, So from as early as I can remember... Uh, not only were there piano students in the house taking their lessons, but um, I would have to go to school with my dad a lot and just be put in a room with every musical instrument, you know, imaginable, really. Wow. So just beat on drums, pick up horns or whatever, and just make terrible noises. <laughs> but I was encouraged <laughs> to do all of that, and, and I very much took to music. Um, my older brother did a little bit, but not as much as I did. I, I felt a very strong draw um, and, and got after it. Um, so that those were my beginnings in it and, you know, singing at church and piano lessons around five, six. And as far as your, what were your interests musically at that time, as far as what music Uh, at the time? So I would say going back to even maybe four years of age, just pop radio. I loved it. Like the voice of my childhood is the voice of Casey Kasem. (laughs) And I just, I religiously listened to American (laughs) top 40 countdowns. And, um, you know, we didn't have cable TV. We lived out in the middle of nowhere, just in the sticks. I mean, it was just kind of a redneck in North Carolina. So just my crappy little battery-powered and also plug-in radio, but usually battery-powered because I had to take it everywhere with me, was just always tuned to KISS FM, the the nearest (laughs) pop station. And I was just infatuated with pop music. Um, And I heard plenty of other stuff. Like my, my parents' record collection had John Denver, and Jose Feliciano and the new Christy Menstrels and the Beatles and uh, and I loved and the Carpenters so much Carpenters um, I think everyone was required to have that in the seventies yeah and I think it should be required to listen oh yeah, absolutely uh, <laughs> great stuff uh, so all of that um, so a heavy pop influence from a young age definitely heard tons of classical music and you know was was dragged as a kid you're like oh 
was dragged to performances of classical music uh, around my hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina, um, and was absorbing that as well. But I'm mostly a student of pop music. Anything particular as far as the sound? Is there a particular sound of pop music that you like, whether more... um, Like, whether it's a certain genre within pop, like as far as punk or folk, you know, or electronic... I would say one of the biggest through lines for my life uh, has always been vocal harmony within pop music. Big Brian Wilson guy, big Beach Boys guy. Uh, certainly a big fan of the later Beatles music where they were trying to mimic the Brian Wilson Beach Boys vocal approach. Um, very into that. That's important to me. Like even a band whose sound palette I just love, if they don't have some vocal harmony in there, I... I get kind of bored really quickly. Not as musically interesting. Yeah, it's not. Um, I love the mixing of synthesizers and stringed instruments. Um, so, you know, like like the Cars. The first album I ever bought was the Cars Heartbeat City. Huh. Just because of the meeting of synthesizers and rock guitars and drums. Uh, I love, still, that's my favorite. Um, it's very evident in my most recent solo record. And, you know, the next one is going to be a step even more in that direction. But... It's very much a mixture of synthesizers and, you know, heavy electric guitars, so, acoustic guitars and whatever. And let's talk about your band for a second. Sure. Um, so your band name is Tiny Goliath? Yes. Yeah, so Tiny Goliath is my acoustic folk band. Okay. I wear three-piece. It's myself and a female who sang lead. We both play acoustic guitar. Uh, I switch off between six and 12 string acoustic guitar. And then we have a mandolin player. So the two of us are lead singers. The remaining two always sing back up. So we do a lot of three-part harmony because that's important <laughs> to me and uh, fortunately to the other members of the band too. Um, <laughs> For every mistake I've made I've been lucky to land on my feet Still I wake up on many a day Struggling with defeat If it's true that we make our own future Guess only time will tell If I see you in heaven or I see you in hell Life is the prayer that we breathe Never knowing if someone will hear I just want to dance in the light But these days I've been dancing in fear But I'm always trying to do better I hope in my heart you can tell I'll see you in heaven. Yeah, so that's that's that band, Tiny Goliath. That's kind of my main gigging current project. We play out once a month, every other month. That's kind of my only live music performance thing happening right now. I'm a solo artist under just my name, Ben Wise. Um, I haven't played a show with that in a while. It's more a studio project. I kind of make those records totally on my own. I program the drums. I play all the instruments. Um, I might have a friend come in to play bass or throw down trumpet or saxophone, something, you know, something I cannot do mm-hmm. and can't program uh, believably. Um, but for the most part, it's me, and I do all the engineering and tracking and mixing, and, you know, it's kind of one-stop shopping for that. It's a lot of layers you have to build solo. It and is, it's, and it's, it's really easy to lose your objectivity when you're doing everything, from, like, concept to completion. You know, when you're like writing these things and I tend to write in my head because I never learned how to write or read music. Uh, I kind of just stormed into it and had to do it my own way. 
to rebel against my parents because every kid has to do that. And my parents were rad. They were music teachers and they were supportive and they loved pop music too. Uh, so, but I just always said, I'm not going to do it the right way. I have to cut my own path. Um, which is how I ended up playing in a lot of punk rock bands for most of my teenage and early twenties years. Hmm. Um, but to come back to my point, I tend to write in my head. So ideas are conceived there. And then whether it's with my folk band or my own music, I just have to record voice memos on my phone and capture my ideas because I can't write them out anyway. Singing into the yeah device yeah Yeah. like just in whatever environment environment i'm in like oh i'm in a food court at a mall but i have this idea and i have to get it down you know that kind of thing (laughs) um but it 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 is very easy to lose objectivity when you're kind of controlling all of it so Um, is it a bit like painting a canvas and you're too close to the canvas yeah yeah and having to stand back and say oh that's too much force for the trees kind of thing okay Yeah, yeah yeah Definitely. And then do you have a person that you always, that, I mean, at at that point, do you just simply, I got to have another set of ears? Yes. And it's the same for, because I'm also a commercial composer. I write music for, as you said in in the opening, that I do music for television commercials and a lot of music for just background and TV shows and sports programming. um, And and some short films. And some short films. Yeah. Um, With things like that, if it's music for TV commercials, you are getting notes from more people than you could ever imagine so if you've lost objectivity you're going to find out pretty quickly and in kind of gross uh (laughs) artistically um ouchy ways (laughs) yeah exactly exactly um uh with my own stuff or something that i'm working on i usually just will call uh, my partner dave into the room and be like hey just come in and listen to this and just having somebody else stand in the room and listen with you that alone makes you listen in a completely different way. And is you it, hear things that, oh, I never even noticed that chord is way too loud. Or, you know, things just, you know, I'll mix the brass way too loud. You right. Know, you can't hear the strings. Right. Simple things like that are made very obvious just by having another physical presence. by trade uh, since I would say early 2001 it's kind of when I started like oh I'm a composer now Um, I fell into it very accidentally Um, I went to I moved from North Carolina to New York to go to audio engineering school 
um, because a friend of mine worked at a studio and there was an engineering school upstairs. Uh, he worked at a jingle house. Uh, and I thought that was a little cheesy because I was a punk rock guy and I was like, who wants to work in a jingle house? <laughs> he was like, well, there's a, a, a quick crash course engineering program upstairs and I guarantee you, you'll come in and impress them because you're a smart guy uh, and you'll probably get an internship. And as somebody who was moving to North Carolina, dropping out of college with only, I think there was like six grand left in my college fund. Uh, and I just talked my parents into letting me have the rest of it to just stop pursuing a French major because what was I going to do with that? I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to pay, I think it was two grand for the course. And they were like, well, then you're only going to have four grand left. I was like, four grand? I can live off that forever. Because <laughs> I was thinking North Carolina, cost of living. That was pretty cheap back then. It got me about two and a half months in New York. Ah, shoot. Uh, barely. Uh but I did get the internship. I worked really hard in this audio engineering course, just surrounded by people that were there to make beats. <laughs> like, I'm here to make beats. And, and I was there to really learn. Uh, I want to see that on a t-shirt. I'm here to make beats. I'm here to make beats. Yeah. You probably sell a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I got the internship at the Jingle House, and I was encouraged to start writing for jingles they were like you're you're a great musician my band would come in and record there i also moved to new york to play in a band and we would record at the studio there on the weekends hmm. or just you know late late at night when all the sessions were done um so they recognized that i had musical prowess whatever you want to call it and encouraged me to try writing and i immediately won and the pay was way better writing something for television broadcast than it was just sitting behind a recording console or running a tape machine or or whatever um, so I was like, I guess I'm a composer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that would count. Yeah. You know, and, and certainly at that time, I think in a post probably 90 or 95 world, jingle was just kind of verboten. Like, oh, we don't use that word. You know, we, we score ads. It's a little antiquated. It's a little 50s TV sort of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or even, you know, you think of, I think of growing up like cereal commercials. Like I love cereal commercials from the 1980s. I love, like, I will go down YouTube rabbit holes and just, I'll just type in 1980 cereal commercial. And, like, especially the honeycomb ones. I don't know why. They're so cheesy. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of craft that very few people can do. You have to make your point in such a short amount of time. Look, you're trying to write a hip-hop single that does everything a pop song does, but in usually 30 seconds or less. Right. So you can't. There really isn't any time for exposition or getting to know any characters. It's just like, here you go. Yep. And, uh, but it also has to make sense. It also can't feel like what's happening is happening. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's a really tricky thing. Um, well, with those, with those early, uh, in terms of when you were starting then out as, as um, with the commercial work, did, was it just sort of you were thrown into the deep end? No, so what I was, I was brought into it by, hey, why don't you do some co-writing with some of our, because they're, uh, the models changed a little bit. There are some places that still operate this way, but increasingly far fewer. Uh, but the place I started out at, at the time, was the number three jingle house in the world. Shame on you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, this was in Manhattan. Um, and when I started out, they had nine, sometimes 11 staff composers. And all of these guys made six figures just having a staff job, just writing music all day 
for various they they would divide you know they would hire different writers based on their strengths so they had a full palette of oh we have this kind of job put these three guys on it and there'd be some crossover some would be ringers for the genre others would be able to do it pretty well but you, there's no accounting for taste you never know what's going to win um, but they actually had 11 I think the highest number was 11 when I was there staff composers now there's only one or two companies that I know of that even have as many as seven or eight staff composers. It's all freelance. It's all freelance. Yeah. And that means there's now 10 times the people in the freelance pool vying for the work, which kind of speaks to what I was mentioning to you before we started recording about, you know, things being very slow and very competitive when they aren't slow. Yeah. Um, it's somewhat an unsustainable model increasingly. Any uh, sentimental favorites or challenging? I'm just curious, like other challenging commercial projects that came along? Ooh, so many. Um, I guess I would start with a career water, uh, high watermark, whatever. Uh, the uh, Writing the theme song for Clarendon Sinus Medicine in 2005 was a big one. Oh. Um, because pharmaceuticals have more money than everybody else put together. And I was kind of glad that it was for a pretty benevolent, benign pharmaceutical and not one of these with like a list of side effects that's, you know, your entire <laughs> lifetime long. It was just for sinus medicine. They just want you to sneeze less and not have those itchy, watery eyes. Um, but because they have so much money, they can also get SAG contracts. If you sing, if you sing vocals on a commercial, then you get Screen Actors Guild money. Nice. So that's how I got my SAG card. Um, but they were like, this is our theme song. We're going to use it for at least the next three years. And they, they, I spent two hours one afternoon working very hard on this piece of music. And then I made a healthy six-figure salary for the next six and a half years just off of that. Wow. It was bizarre and incredible. <laughs> and a lot of composers work 15, 20 years to look like that was the holy grail. And I'd only really been a composer for about five years. Wow. So I was very lucky. Uh, and it was kind of a poppy, acoustic feel-good with Beach Boys stacked harmonies. I mean, it was... I'm sure we've all heard it, and I just can't think of it. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I'm sure you have. They, they stopped so. using it in uh, 2012, early 2013, but it ran from summer 2005 until well into 2012 and i'm a big claritin fan yeah myself it doesn't so. work for me what? so is it yeah no how can that be it just doesn't really do a thing for me i'm a flonase guy oh i have that too yeah <laughs> I, I have another double up right so while while this was not the piece of music that i'm written that i've written for a commercial campaign that i'm the proudest of it made me a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, um so that's worthy of note yeah uh, in terms of campaigns that I've written music that I'm artistically pleased with, uh, there was a Guinness, uh, when Guinness unveiled their American Blonde Ale uh, going back, this was summer of 2014, so a little over three years now, I did the music for that. And it was, uh, I played in a Celtic punk band for a handful of years, huh. and they wanted that vibe. They wanted kind of like a Pogues, Dropkick Murphys kind of vibe, and I was like, oh, I can give you that. Huh. And um and that did well, and I felt really good with the end result. And that was one that I went into, and every job is competitive. You're never just handed a thing. You're competing against, at minimum, seven or eight people. At most, 30 or 40. I mean, wow. your odds of winning are crazy small a lot of the time. Wow. 
Um, Can you talk about your short film? We are working short films. Yes. And how yeah. Been. And I mean, look, my, my work in short film is limited. My work in kind of webisodes mm -hmm. and web series and stuff like that. I've done so many different things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, as your wife is in the comedy and improv community, so is my partner. So, I mean, I definitely most of my friends are comedy geeks who are always working right. on some crazy idea. So I've done music for so many little web series kind of things, whatever. Um, my my biggest uh, credit in the short film world, at which and I'm very proud of it. Uh, and when I say short film, that's a bit misleading because it was actually I think the final cut originally was around 38 minutes. Oh wow! And that's not such a short film. No. Um, the director, writer, producer, one stop shopping, uh, <laughs> ended up having to cut it down uh, when he went to enter it into film festivals because. Yes, it's considered a short film, and for film festival entry, I think their cutoff for a short film is 40 minutes. But if you come in with something that's right up to that mark, it's frowned upon hmm. because there there's you, and then there's how many other people trying to get their films into this film festival, and they can show five films in the time of year one. Yeah. So he he they were like, you have to cut it down, but yes, we're interested in showing it, and he was like, okay. And he cut it down, and it ended up being just under 30 minutes, which is still a very long short film. Uh, and for this originally 38-minute film, it it need he came to me saying it needs some help. Like it, we were kind of up against the wall with our shooting dates and our timeline and everything, and some things got lost in the shuffle. And it needs a little help musically just to seal the deal. Was he not originally going to have any? Oh, he was music? definitely going to have music, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I just think he kind of thought he was also the screenwriter. You know, it was totally his baby. And I, ju I just think he really... I don't think he captured what he wanted to when it was time to roll. I, I, I think he lost objectivity, to come back to what we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. How it's when you're doing everything, when you're trying to keep all these balls in the air, when you're the writer, the producer, the director, he was doing final edit. You know, like, it's very easy to just lose yourself. And that's kind of where he found himself once he had gotten his final cut, which I never believed that because everybody keeps changing their cut long after the composer starts working. But once he had a working cut developed, he was kind of like, yeah, I really kind of lost myself in this. That's so interesting. So when he came to me, he was like, it needs a lot of help musically. And I was like, okay, great. Just tell me give me timings of where you really see music working and helping things. And for 38 minutes of film, it came to about 31, 32 minutes of music. Wow. Which was crazy. But for me, I just kind of, I wanted the experience. I wanted the credit. I was kind of flush with cash at the time. And I was like, I can afford to take this on and I need the experience. And, um, and it was, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, Yes, it was a lot of work. It took around a month, which I mean is nothing. I mean, I'm not having to hire an orchestra or re-record anything. You know, I'm just, it was mostly based on my sort of folk Irish music capabilities. You played all the instruments? I played, I had my mandolin playing friend from my folk band came in to play mandolin. I did everything else. Wow. Um, I borrowed a friend's accordion. I played all the accordion parts, which was a lot of fun. Dad, did you come up with, or he came to you and that's the sound he wanted? Yes, he was kind of referred to me um, through one of the actors in the film is a very close buddy of mine who I do I do a lot of music for his short films as well, um, and 
so he was one of the leads in the film and as they were shooting it he was like who do you have for music on this and the director was like well nobody yet do you have anybody in mind and he asked him like kind of what he saw working and he was kind of like kind of like a celtic folk thing and you know my buddy was like I got the guy. Um, and, you know, to come back to budget, I mean, he had a thousand bucks. Oh, my gosh. And, I mean, we're talking about close to a month of work. I mean, I'm, I'm not working 24 hours a day, obviously. <laughs> but, like, it took up basically a month of my working time to do this. Um, it's so interesting that you had that much music to have to provide. Because yeah. one of the comments on that a lot of film score fans of you know people who are in the even in the industry have talked about is the amount of music increasing even as long as like theatrical films get yeah whereas you know it, it did it wasn't always that way and sometimes you'd have a three-hour movie that had 30 minutes of music back in the 70s you know and then it yeah. just got more and more and they just started it, a lot of it was seen as a crutch it's just yep. interesting that even in a short movie that you know percentage wise most of it's the bulk of its running time is still scored yeah and, and I think that also speaks a lot to, I, I would say, the inexperience of any director. And I mean, you know, th this guy is great. I, I think his main strength, I, I do think he's a great screenwriter. You know, like, um, the, the writing was great. I read that before seeing anything else. And it was like, oh, this is kind of dear. And, you know, it's comedic. And it's kind of a buddy comedy thing. Um, and on paper, it was great. Uh, he decided to cast the leads against type. Hmm. So the guy that should have been the funny one was the serious one. And, you know, it, it was a little backwards. And that was a choice that he made that even he later was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Is, is that the objectivity, the lack of ob objectivity? It could be. Yeah. It could be. I mean, I, I still think in the end it came away with a great film. Um, but... Just to come back to the point of, you know, having to do 31, 32 minutes of music for a 38-minute film. I mean, he came to me like, it needs some help, and I need a lot of music, and I hope you're still okay with this. And I was, and I was down to play ball. And um, so we did it, and, you know, I had him over about a month later to just show it down and let him watch it. And he had next to no notes. He was like, I'm kind of a... a detail OCD freak and I'm pretty exhaustive um, I know how to take direction and uh, when I have a month to work on something it's a little easier to keep my objectivity in check as opposed to I mainly speak to the objectivity thing as pertains to writing for commercials because you'll get a job in and they'll need 15, 30, 60 seconds of music and you might have six hours to do it or you might have you know you might have up to three days I would say that's kind of the typical thing, but they kind of need it quickly. And the production value is high. Even if you're doing 10 seconds of music, it still needs to sound fully realized and like the mix and right. everything has to feel right. And when you're writing, tracking, engineering, mixing, all of it, and you have this time constraint and you're just like, Bleh. it's it's easy to lose objectivity. Um with this film, it was a little easier to keep that intact because I had time. I had a month. I could take breaks from it, walk away, go to the gym, come back with fresh ears and be like, yeah, no, I kind of lost my way there. I'm going to redo that part. Now, as far as like part of the the standard process for theatrical movies is the composer and director will screen a movie and go through the spotting session. Mm -hmm. um, 
so for anybody who doesn't know, that's obviously that's basically where they decide music's going to go here. It's going to be silent here. We're going to need music here, that kind of thing. But usually the directors, they they hopefully will, the director won't be didactic about it, but like they talk right. about it. And sometimes the composer may have to convince you really don't need music there. Right. But did you guys go through that, or was we it? Did, yes, we did that. He came over once. We watched the movie down. He already he showed up with notes where he kind of already thought there should be music. Um, I, there were a couple spots where I was like, hey, you could pare that back a little bit. I, I don't really think it needs to breathe there. Like I know you think it needs help the whole way. Relax. You haven't created a turd. Like this is still kind of a, a good little <laughs> film. Uh, you don't have to uh, overdo it. It's so interesting because like it's so funny that I mean that conversation goes on at the, at the theatrical level, and just from people that I've talked to over the years, or even just reading interviews how difficult it seems to be to get directors to let their film breathe. Yes. And that one of the complaints that um, often happens in, in movies, whether people are into music or not, is, oh my God, it's so overscored. Yes. You know, and there, and, and it's, I have understood over the years as well, talking to people and, and reading about it is that it's a lot of times studio interference as well. And that it comes back that, well, yeah, originally we weren't going to score this or score that, but the studio says, oh, it needs something. And so you get six producers who are sitting in the booth going, We're kind well, of maybe losing faith in the project. And right. Like, oh, look, we need to do something. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing. And unless the director is strong, able to strong arm them or, or have some leverage that he, they has to, he has to bend to what the studio wants. Yeah. Um, and so most movies just get overscored for scenes that the music doesn't do anything. Right. It's just somehow like a pulse. Yeah. It's just a beat behind something, but like the movie, it's someone walking from here to there. But like, why even have music? Right. It doesn't. It's it's just something extra that the person has to write. It's just waste time. Right. And it's not commenting on anything. Yeah. But they can't. The whole thing that is like after so many decades of being, you know, talking about this and being, you know, with people in the industry, and like people are like, you know, not everything has to be scored, and like you your film has to breathe and don't suffocate it with music even though we like the music it's like even though i'm a fan of like this composer that composer i would love to hear everything they write right but they don't you know a two-hour 10-minute movie doesn't need two hours and 10 minutes of music right yeah and a film is first and foremost telling a story and like yes the music should should support that (laughs) yeah it shouldn't kind of usurp what's happening on screen it should just be supporting it yeah and and yeah to just kind of throw music at every part of a film it just kind of calls attention to desperation or you know people that have lost faith in a project or a shitty idea <laughs> it loses its impact yes i mean at the, the more you hear it the less it has an impact correct um with it. it it's it it just becomes part of a wall of sound yeah uh temp tracking comes into play heavily with music for commercials with incidental music for television shows those sorts of things are always tempt and they're temp so heavily and especially with TV commercials, they're tempted in such a way that they want you to get as close to that temp as possible without getting anybody sued. Like they, they, they get demo love or temp love where they're just sewn to the temp track and they want it and they can't have it. They can't afford it. And there are certain things that like the black keys, like warning, run away from any job where the black keys are the temp track because they are so litigious. <laughs> they will sue anybody into their grave oh my gosh Um, yeah so so there is a lot of temping but mostly in the jingle industry um i'm sure if you're involved in higher level films than i've had the pleasure of doing yet i know some film composers that do bigger things than i have yet to do um 
there there is a decent amount of temping yeah yeah the the the, the temp track has been around it's not like it's anything new no it, it's just it's become to the point where it's, it's become a crutch in a lot of ways and it, it's it's never going away and a lot of composers say they just they may even say i'll listen to it once and then they never go back to it and they just simply want to get it as a guide like okay do you want this orchestral or maybe you do want something smaller maybe right. you just want strings that helps great yeah but it's that inclination of uh can it sound more like the temp no no no. can it sound closer to the temp and that's where it gets into it's like define sound closer do you want the instrumentation to be closer do you want the musical motifs to be closer is yeah. it a tempo is it a key because like when a temp track comes in the main things you do is you fudge your tempo a few bpm up or down uh you change the key and you maybe invert the chord changes mm. and those are the first three things that you do you'll come away from that still kind of getting at the same thing but staying in a safe place legally it's something that you know again audiences are usually they don't have to be aware of it but it's like as right. over the years as me listening you know so much to so much you know film music apart from movies over three four decades i can't remember yeah. eventually when it hit like probably around the mid 90s i'm like huh i'm starting to hear this a lot right. and it's like you could like recognize I think this score was tracked with that because you could even get down to like the edits almost like of when the key would change. You're like, oh, that's where they, and it would be going into the same key. And it's like, and I, I guarantee you, your, your instinct was spot on. Yeah. And yeah. It, but it's something where I'm like, no one's really going to know unless you're really listening to it. Um, yeah. But there, you know, it's, it's funny. The one thing that people miss in the getting the temp track love is the fact of what an original score can bring to you is more cohesion. Yes. You know, and that's something that um, if you're just simply having everyone, if you're l littering it with 12 different tracks from 12 different movies and you're having that person, your composer copy that, you're missing any cohesion. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's that's what unfortunately happens. And that's before you factor in that kind of the modern movie approach. And I guess I'm not speaking to movies that have a more traditional orchestral score, but, you know, music supervisors are king nowadays. Yeah. And like the way movies are made... And I would even go back to the movie Singles in the early 90s, where that was mm. the first movie that was like just pieced together by Seattle's greatest artists. And then the Smashing Pumpkins were in there. Jimi Hendrix was in there because he was a Seattle native. Um, but that soundtrack was groundbreaking at the time. It was like, what? All my favorite music constitutes the soundtrack of this movie i mean yeah. there was the breakfast club and the john hughes movies before that that incorporated major yeah. artists but they also just had random you know people just writing kind of b-roll yeah. music that was in there too um and that kind of set a precedent for more modern movies where it's just a bunch of popular songs crammed in there yeah and I guess it works, but it, it feels more like you're watching a, a TV series. I find that a lot movie. on TV shows now, less than in movies. Grey's Anatomy contributed a lot to this phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of created this phenomenon as pertains to television. Yeah. It's like they rely less on a score <clears throat> than throwing in a pop song to basically kind of communicate exactly what's happening. And Which they... makes for a great moment. Yeah. But like the rest of the show, other than that moment, it's just kind of like whatever. Yeah. It's funny, I think once album sales and digital kind of took 
place took the place of actual oh, hard damn. copy. Yes. That kind of took away, I think, the novelty of buying a soundtrack album. Correct. And like now you might have Pharrell doing Happy, which was a huge hit, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like people... It, it doesn't happen as often as it did through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s where it was like, let's get a soundtrack album out there and we have right. to attach someone's name to it. Or maybe it was an album of nothing but songs from the movie. Right. It, you know, that doesn't... Even that has kind of faded away. Yep. Which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just... Because for a while as a soundtrack collector, as a movie music collector, that was the bane of our existence. Yeah. You see a movie, oh, it has music by... Uh, you know my favorite composer and then you go and you find the album like oh it's all songs right from the movie there's not even one score track there's only one track from the 22nd cue oh yeah or there's one it's like you know um my my friend and i were talking about mission impossible the first mission impossible movie in 96 yeah had a, a music by danny elfman and there eventually was a score album but like the first album that came out it was like music from and inspired by and that was initially like we would shake our fist at the sky at the inspired by from and inspired, from and inspired by. by. Then when we were as a, as a fan in the nineties, maybe it was started in the late eighties. It was like when you saw from an inspired music inspired by, you're like, frick, it's going to be all songs. Yeah. And most of them were songs that weren't in the movie. Right. You know, or they throw them in the end credits and then the end credits is like four songs stitched together. Mm-hmm. And then there's one score track by Danny Elfman. Right. The soundtrack to Edward Scissorhands is one of my... That's the only movie soundtrack I think I own on CD. And then I think I played the CD out and I just had to download, you know, the MP3s <laughs> of the whole thing. But I love, love, love that soundtrack. And Also by Danny Elfman. Also by Danny Elfman, who, who would be... Like, I, I would look to him... I, I don't know if we're trying to segue into a different section, but I would look to him as a composer that... I look up to a lot. He had a very unconventional absolutely, and um, his work has always just resonated with me. Before I knew anything about his path, and then once I learned about his path and like his misgivings, even getting into it, like I don't know if I belong here. And he kind of needed help from another. I think was it a bandmate or a friend who actually had Steve Bartek, who had also in Boingo, yeah, yeah, also in Boingo, yeah, yeah. Who was like, I can help you with this, and that kind of like eased him, you know, off the slip into the lake. But it was he had already been writing more for more instruments in Boingo before he was doing music because he would, you know, he was doing things for them like it with larger and larger groups of uh, of of players. Yeah, and and Steve Bartek will help him with orchestration. Right. Um, But it is kind of funny when you mentioned the thing about like it's in your head and you record it into your voice recorder that's one of my favorite stories of danny elfman of him being on a plane back and forth from london during batman and he was hired to score it and he had the idea while on the plane and he as you know he's he doesn't he he never actually studied music so he doesn't have that he doesn't he can't write you know no theory background right he figured out his own notation but like he would basically carry around the recorder and he went to the lavatory on the plane and basically yeah. hummed it or this is the bass line and he does it. This is the melody. Blah, blah, blah. And basically, yep. so he gets, he lands in LA. Oh, that's the theme. Yep. Um, and that's one of my favorite stories of, uh, from Danny. But when you've described your past and your background going into scoring, I often do, you know, that's exactly what Danny Elfman yep. went through. Um, and, you know, there's, there's definitely other guys, you know, who, who have, you know, now that we're getting into the age of, there's other composers that have come in from electronic or pop background. So I guess that's becoming more common. But Elfman really was kind of the, he set the 
the, the model for that. Yeah. And he and for a long time, there was a stigma against him, which I was unfortunate. Know that. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of people in the established Hollywood community, because he didn't have that background, they didn't yeah. actually trust that he was composing the music himself. It's the old boys club and, you know, here yeah. comes this new kid. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet he had his own sound right out of the gate. Yeah. That's what's so incredible. And maybe that's because of Boingo Boingo, but it's like you go to his, his original projects um, that he did, even just a few things before Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And he, and Elfman is very upfront about his influences. Right. Nina Rota, Bernard, Bernard Herman. Herman. Yeah. Uh, one or two other guys but like that's he's like those are his loves and he's a synthesis of that right filtered through his own lens and it sounds like danny elfman and it did from day one yep. that's what's one of the incredible things that i seems like it's really difficult now to do but he was able to do it and you would buy it and you're like oh it's a new score by danny elfman it sounded like danny elfman you would so there's no curveball in his catalog there's no like really what? and you can and as he grew as an artist um, you hear him experiment more regardless of what the project was. Okay. And he went from being more Nina Rota and Bernard Herrmann to being more textural and to being more percussive and to figuring out, I'm going to play all these percussion instruments and I'm going to layer them together. And he, he, he would, his experimentation grew. You know, I think it's he got like borrowing from Thomas Newman at that point. I guess, but even like, but he was doing it concurrent with Newman because okay. Newman came along and started doing electronic in the '80s with Desperately Seeking Susan and Real uh-huh. Genius, and then he got more orchestral right. after Shawshank Redemption, and so like, gotcha. th- but that was when Elfman was getting more textural. Okay, and so then he was more experimenting with that kind of, and didn't matter the project. It didn't matter whether it was like a Tim Burton movie or Mission Impossible. He, it's like. I don't know. This is what I'm in the mood for now is percussion. Right. And, you know, and, but then he got back into more, he, he's gotten more orchestral since then. I, I think what's huh. so great is that he allows himself as an artist, he's growing and he's not afraid to like bring that to his projects. Right. And it's him and his projects. And that's what I think has been really awesome about his career. Right. Um, whether you're starting and listening to his stuff in 85 or now, mm-hmm. you know, you can hear a trajectory too. Right. Which is, unique a large part of the short film score which i should mention did go on to win best score at the williamsburg international film festival i was going to ask if that was the one you won that for. is the one that i won. so it was my first over 10 minute film score ever and it won it won yeah it won uh best score at williamsburg film festival um and it got a bronze medal at the world music awards um so i i felt like those were both great accolades to get no that's fantastic score. yeah um, but that was not temp tracked. He came to me with a genre and kind of ideas. And there were scenes in that that were orchestral. I still have not shown you this film, by the way. I guess I, not. That's we true. To, we need to do that. Yeah. Um, there were parts in it that wanted hip hop. There were parts that wanted just like straight up dinky pop music. There were parts that wanted like this very emotional, swelling orchestral thing. Um, so it was not as simple as I've come to you because you're a folk music guy. Give me 31, 32 minutes of folk. I mean, it was it, w- it was a challenge that kind of tapped into multiple facets of my skill set. Um, wow. But it was not temp-tracked, and, and that was kind of great. I mean, it was challenging because the way some of the scenes progressed and the way some of the cuts were, it was really hard to find tempos that hit things right where I didn't have to cut 
you know, bars in half or just like remove a measure, you know, oh, I'm switching my time signature now just so I can land back on the cut, um, which is maddening, but I love a challenge. But um, there wasn't too much of that, oddly, in this. This was just kind of like a perfect thing. The only thing that wasn't perfect was that it only paid $1,000. That was a month <laughs> Curses. Yeah. But like, I, I don't think, um, I think I've digressed a little bit, but to come back to my point about like, we're so far along in just the human race making music in the first place. And then you tack onto that, the movie and television industry has existed for quite some time now that it's really hard to do anything that isn't um, in some way borrowed as as best, at best, mm-hmm. and just straight up repetitive and ripped off in many cases. Mm. So like, I think temp, temp music is just, it's kind of a necessary evil at this point. Wow. That like, it's almost like Carl Jung's concept of the collective unconscious. Like we're all just walking around with all of these preconceived notions and things that already exist that it's kind of hard to expect anybody to completely detach from that of what sounds like yeah of just like what oh we've shot this kind of scene it has this tone to it oh my gosh i've heard this song my entire life that really speaks to this moment and for a non-musical person it's really hard to get across musical ideas it's really hard to like the number of times somebody has wanted more energy in a piece of music but they say it's got to be faster and there are so many ways that you can put energy into a piece of music without speeding up the tempo. And when they say make it faster, they're saying speed up the tempo, but that's not what they mean to say. So for so many people that are producers, um, not so much editors because editors understand timing and beats per minute and tempos, but producers for sure, um, they don't if they don't have a working knowledge of music and musical terms, they don't know how to get at what they're trying to say. But they do know that this piece of music that they've heard for God knows how long conveys what they're trying to say. Right. So it's kind of a necessary shorthand, I guess, the temp track. So I appreciate you coming here to talk about... I've had a fantastic time talking. I haven't. I hope I haven't overtalked. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I like. You know. I, like I said, I can. I can certainly. I, there's a million great things we talked you about. You can silence me later. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if anyone listening wanted to find you, as far as you know, uh, social media, um, yes. where can they locate you? Uh, you can find me on um, Twitter at Benwise, uh, spelled like it sounds: B E N W I S E. Uh, Instagram, same thing, Ben Wise. I'm very early to all platforms, so I secure my name on them. Uh, I have a Facebook fan page for my solo music, which is Ben Wise, easy to find. Uh, I just put a new single out into the world on Monday that I'm very proud of. Uh, I heard Monday, it. What's that? I heard it. It's oh. great. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Monday won't mean much by the time this is released, because oh. what does Monday mean? <laughs> but... Um, um uh so so that uh my folk band is called tiny goliath um and you can just search there aren't many things called tiny goliath in this world so you can easily find us by searching for that and uh my composing site is uh richteresque.com got it that sounds fantastic well again thank you very much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me this has been great this is awesome this is you know definitely you know one of my favorites so i appreciate it i hope we have settled some scores on the score to settle yes exactly thank you for bringing it back to the name of the show sure happy to thanks awesome bye
So this wraps up my conversation with Ben Wise, musician and composer. Uh, I'd like to again thank Ben for participating and sharing his experiences and stories from working in the composing side of the industry. Of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found it both fun and informative. Lastly, I want to apologize for any odd noises uh, interfering with the sound in this episode, uh, whether it was an airplane overhead or just some glitches during the recording. Thanks for being understanding on that. I'm still working out the kinks uh, in my podcasting skills. Uh, If you're interested in following up with Ben and his music, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at at Ben Wise, uh, B-E-N-W-I-S-E, on Facebook for his solo music at Ben Wise, and search online for his band, Tiny Goliath. Uh, and since we didn't mention it during the conversation, it's my fault. The, the name of the short film for which Ben won that best score at the Williamsburg Film Festival is All Things Chicken is the name of that. Uh, if you'd like to send any comments or questions to me, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com and on Facebook at Escortasettle. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>